0: This week on the Backtable Podcast.
1: These devices also help decrease inadvertent embolization to unintended areas.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right, especially because <clears throat> that's kind of where the entire uh, philosophy started. And so... Yeah, you
1: guys do sound like brothers. You you're, <laughs> you sound very similar.
0: <laughs> and he's younger, so he definitely copied me. All right. <laughs> there you exactly. go. Right. It might be hard for us to tell each other apart, or for you to tell us apart, I should say. Um but the one who sounds like a doctor is me. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, welcome everybody to the Backtable Podcasts. I'm your host, Anish Parikh, and I'm joined today by Dr. Charles Nutting of Sky Ridge Cancer Center in Colorado and Dr. Nainish Parikh of the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. They've joined us to speak about barriers to therapy uptake in treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma and the benefits and drawbacks of pressure-directed therapy. Tumor microenvironments are complex. Interventional radiologists, the MacGyvers that you are, need to be aware of how to navigate them successfully, which is why we've brought a couple of experts on in today's episode to help shed some light. Dr. Charlie Nutting and Dr. Nainish Parikh. Nine, Charlie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you for
1: me. having me.
0: Now, for those of you who've been following our podcast since the beginning, we've got something brand new for this episode. And Before I say anything further, I'm going to pass along a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Surefire Medical. Surefire has the only expandable tip catheter to help physicians maintain blood flow while reducing reflux during chemo and radioembolization procedures. Now physicians can deliver therapy deeper into liver tumors while protecting healthy tissue. Learn more at surefiremedical.com. Now, lest anyone think that Dr. Parikh's last name is purely a coincidence, I should point out that he is also my brother. So, hi, mom, look at us. Guys, go ahead and give a little background on yourselves and your practices for our audience. Uh, Dr. Nutting, go ahead.
1: Hi, uh, I'm an interventional radiologist practicing in Denver, Colorado. I'm in a private practice group, a large group of radiologists, about 100 radiologists with 12 interventionalists. Uh, My primary focus is interventional oncology. And I would say that I specialize in performing radioembolization uh procedures, as well as other forms of liver-directed therapy.
2: Great. Thanks. And uh, nine, Dr. Parikh. Sure. So as Anish said, I am the younger brother of the Parikh family. We actually do have a third brother. Uh, so all three of us say hi, mom. I am uh, similar to Charlie. I'm an interventional radiologist at Moffitt Cancer Center located in Tampa, Florida, Um I, too, uh, come from a big group of uh, interventional radiologists. We actually have six, uh, and we also focus on liver-directed therapy for uh, liver cancer. I think me personally, I focus on liver cancer. Uh, I also focus on um, arterial embolization for prostate, both cancer and benign prostatic hyperplasia. But for the purpose of this talk, uh, definitely do um, the lion's share of work for liver-directed therapy for liver cancer.
0: So how do do you guys approach, love to hear from from both of you, how do you
2: approach your HCC treatments? Sure, so I can say I I think uh, we probably do it different ways. Um, I think I can speak for my practice in saying that uh, we work very closely with all four pillars of uh, oncology, so surge onc, med onc, uh, interventional oncology, Um, and radiation oncology. And every single HCC patient that walks through the doors of Moffitt gets presented uh, at a liver tumor board with all four of those folks present. Um, For us, oftentimes if it's unresectable disease, we get um, first dibs, so to speak, at treating HCC with liver directed therapy. And because of the practice patterns that have been developed far before I got there, probably over the last 14 years, our preference, if it's not a trial candidate Uh, our preference would probably be for radioembolization first. Um, At our institution, we use therospheres almost exclusively uh, uh, with very, very select cases to use SERSpheres. And then for residual disease, uh, typically we make the decision, um, obviously this would be probably about 12 to 15 weeks after, after therapy or far later on in the course of the patient's disease, we would then switch to either bland embolization or chemoembolization uh, and again, just because of our practice patterns, we typically will use bland embolization uh, with pretty decent result.
1: And I would say in Denver, uh, since we're private practice, I'm dealing with lots of different referring physicians, uh, primarily from the community, occasionally from the university. Um, if it's a, a regional liver therapy candidate, most of those patients are being treated with radioembolization. And uh, we use uh, both products, both SurSphere and Um, Some of the patients who are coming from the university system; uh, those surgical oncologists prefer the patients to be treated with uh, drug-eluting beads and/or chemoembolization as a first-line therapy, reserving radioembolization
0: for failures. Okay, got it. So, and can just for the for the layman here, talk a little bit about radioembolization and how that works at a high level.
1: Nine. Do you want to address uh, that? Sure.
2: Sure. Sure. So uh, just to set the stage niche, you know, uh, anytime that we're talking about unresectable liver disease um, because of, especially HCC, the theory is that uh, the blood flow is the blood flow distribution um, for these tumors is predominantly arterial rather than portal venous. Um, so in these patients, we think about how to take advantage of that fact and deliver therapy through the artery. Uh, you've, the way we always explain it to patients is you've got three choices. You've got um, radioactive material that's loaded on small spheres that gets delivered to uh, places of increased blood flow. You've got chemotherapy that's loaded on small pieces of glass or spheres as well. That also goes predominantly to where the blood flow takes it. And then you've got uh, just spheres in and of themselves without anything loaded that goes to where the blood flow takes it, and each of those three, while they are all predicated upon the blood flow, uh, they all uh, have different outcomes. So, for radioembolization, our goal is simply to deliver the radioactive dose uh, to the to the tumor. And when we think about delivering um, radioembolization radio or Y ninety, as sometimes people will call it, standing for yttrium ninety, what it requires is a mapping angiogram. At least for us. Uh, and that's one procedure where you go and literally map out the vasculature uh, to the tumors that you're trying to treat. Um, the most traditional sense is that if it's by lobar disease, uh, there are two uh, arteries that supply the right lobe of the liver and the left lobe of the liver. And so what you'll do is just treat the right lobe with a certain treatment, and then you'll let the patient heal. And six weeks later, you'll treat the left lobe. Uh, and then that's kind of how the practice started. Um, and again, you have to understand that you're not trying to, the. I should say, the endpoint that we're trying to achieve is simply delivery of the entire calculated dose. Um, I'll just say a note on dose calculation. There's various ways to calculate the appropriate radioactive dose uh, for HCC. Um, but for the most part, the goal is simply to deliver the entire dose into each of those arteries supplying the lobe of the tumor. Uh, Charlie, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: No, I, I agree with that. And i very comprehensive.
0: And and I guess then what 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 barriers do you run into with this approach? I mean, is it all roses or you know what what barriers and what concerns do you have when you go in that you try to address? Because Dr. Nutting, go ahead.
1: So um we use both uh both Y90 products to treat uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. And there is definitely a higher embolic load when we talk about the Uh, the SIRSphere product. So one of the questions or one of the concerns that comes up is as we're infusing the radioactive microspheres into the tumor distribution, what happens if we hit stasis prior to delivery of the entire dose? And um, uh, this this has been a question in my mind. Uh, If we give less than the anticipated dose, is that efficacious? Um, I think that now that we have some of these pressure-directed methods to deliver the microspheres, especially with uh, chemoembolization or radioembolization with a higher embolic load, I feel like we're able to give up to 100% of the dose, whereas previously we may have been limited by stasis.
2: And Anish, if I can, I'd probably also add, uh, you know, Charlie's got a lot more experience than I do, and so I think he, he probably takes... Takes this with a grain of salt. But when you're first starting to do these, the thing that you really start to worry about is non-target embolization. Um, and that's why this, the, the endpoints with stasis are important. Uh, most notably, non-target embolization of any of the shared collateral supply that supplies the liver. Uh, most commonly, the right gastric artery coming off of uh, the left hepatic artery, uh, as well as the GDA supplying uh, both the pancreas and duodenum. And so what you really start to get worried about is non-target embolization, um, particularly when you get to a point of stasis. And so that's always the balance is not just um, non-target embolization versus stasis, but in addition, uh, at a higher level to what Charlie's saying is getting all of your dose in so you can effectively uh, treat the patient. So first you want to do it safely. Then I think the second point is to say, well, how can we do it the most efficaciously as Charlie's talking about? Um, and I think those are kind of the steps that you start to think about.
0: What, what's the effect of non-targeted embolization? What is it ultimately, what, what's the impact that it has, and how is that related to the efficacy?
1: I think that the um, the issues that we see with non-target embolization are probably increased adverse events. So some of the nausea or vomiting that can occur after an embolization increase in liver function studies. I think that, uh, uh if we decrease non-target embolization, we're probably going to improve some of the adverse outcomes.
0: And does it also improve the quality of the treatment itself? I mean, again, I'm you know, I'll struggle with the terms as a layman, but, uh, if you're essentially getting therapy, that's going to the wrong place for, you know, to put it bluntly, um, is that reducing the overall effectiveness uh, in addition to adding side effects, essentially?
1: Sure. So I think that if we can improve the delivery to the tumor and decrease inadvertent embolization, the patients are going to have better outcomes. And if we look at their retrospective data out of Georgetown, uh, they saw improved results uh, in the patients who had a palliative cellular carcinoma, Uh, the imaging studies afterwards, there were better response rates in patients who were treated with a pressure-directed therapy. And I think that this was also uh, mimicked in the Piedmont data, which shows that there was uh, improved outcomes uh, with decreased recurrence rates in patients who were treated with a surefire device or catheter-directed therapy versus an end-hole catheter alone.
0: And nine, I don't know if you've looked at this, but what's what's your take on on that and on on this type of therapy approach?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to to note. I I would say that non-target embolization uh, comes in various flavors, right? I mean, the dreaded outcome of non-target embolization is going to a different organ, um, and so obviously that's why we do the workup angiogram. The non-target embolization to healthy liver tumor, I'm sorry, healthy liver parenchyma or healthy liver tissue. Uh, is the kind of more nuanced effect that we're describing here uh, on a a more advanced level. And, you know, I think that that's where uh, what Charlie's talking about with the data we're trying to bear out. So I will say that, you know, it affects, first of all, for us, I think there's a trade-off between how selective you can get for each of the tumors that you're treating versus the amount of normal liver parenchyma that you are going to, treat with your uh, either radioactive or your arterial therapy, let's call it, one of the three. Um, When we look at how we're going to treat these patients, we try to, of course, get as selective as possible based on the various uh, distribution of the tumor. And what I mean by that is if segments five and six are spared and we can only look at segments seven and eight, then we will. Uh, Similarly, on the left side, if segments two and three are spared, but segment four is involved, then we'll try to get out and only treat segment four. Um, we at Moffitt actually only use end hole catheters, uh, and it's not to say that we're necessarily biased, so to speak, but what I would say is that um, we're not necessarily convinced, particularly because our patient population tends to start with the radioembolization. embolization. Uh, Charlie, I, you seem to know the data probably a little bit better than me, but if I recall, the Georgetown data and the Piedmont data were solely for eight. Uh, sorry, chemoembolization. It'd be interesting to know, you know, how that changes for radioembolization, um, right. and I do, th- and I do think that, you know, I haven't dig, I haven't dug into the details of each of their patients, but it's almost as if you'd want to know if you park the catheter in the main right or you know in the in segment two of the left, call it, and then you compare that way. How do the outcomes look? Because I do think that there are several different variables for. How you can compare these pieces of data, uh, but I think one of the big things for us is that because our patient population and our institution tends to start with radioembolization, we don't we don't end up uh, using the Surefire device quite as much uh, based on the data that's out there.
1: I w- I would agree with that nine. I think that uh, there is some data that came out of the University of Tennessee with uh, Dr. Passiak at all, and uh, they showed that when they were using. Um, Surefire uh, catheter with the infusion of MAA and radioembolization. That there was actually improved dosing to the tumor uh, with de- decreased inadvertent embolization or non-target embolization. So um, you're right. I think that there is more work that needs to be done in this area, but some of the initial uh, data is uh, is fairly compelling.
0: Let me ask uh, another layman's question here. I mean, let's just say. You know how you know nine would you you guys your approach if if I'm a say I'm somewhere in the you know rural part of the country and I've got a patient who presents with these symptoms and I've got an option to either you know use pressure directed or not i mean how how do I make that choice you know is it as cut and dry as uh, I guess there's two questions in that one what if i I happen to have only pressure directed you know surefire or other on hand um can I go ahead and do that, right? Let's just say I, I have that on hand. Can I do that? Are there things I need to be concerned about? You know, if I don't have it on hand, under what circumstances might I want to request it or something like that? And again, it's a
2: little bit of the, the layman's question, but but help me think about that. Sure. I mean, I think that that's, of course, a loaded question, and I can try to step through all the responses. Um, you know, Charlie and I have been talking about how pressure acted therapy started, and I think here would be an appropriate nod to talking about the fact that it actually uh, started as an anti-reflux device, uh, the Surefire system in particular. There have been since the advent of other catheters that uh, are speaking more towards pressure reactive therapy, but just to kind of for, for that person who might not um, know the nuanced differences between what we're talking about uh, for all these catheters, Surefire in particular started as an anti-reflux device. So the whole point was to protect against non-target embolization of specifically other uh, organs. Now, what what research has found, and I think is promising, is that when you use these anti-reflux devices, you actually improve perfusion through the tumor because there are perfusional changes that occur when normal systole and diastole are altered by an anti-reflux device such as the SureFire. Uh, balloon devices, balloon occlusion devices also do the same or a similar thing. So what I would probably say uh, to someone Um, that doesn't do this that much is that I would think about it both as an anti-reflux and as a um, pressure-directed therapy device. And I probably wouldn't get too caught up in the details except to say, if you feel like you have a patient that uh, isn't, you know, you can't see the mass very well um, on angiography or you feel like you're really trying, like it's it's a small vessel or something like that. And you're going to have trouble getting in all of your dose you might try pressure-directed therapy to see if you can actually get all of your dose in, all of your intended dosin. I think that might be an option for where you might try to use this device. Charlie, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree, Nine. I think that um, probably low-capacitance vessels, when you inject and you really don't see the tumor very well, that may be a good indication to use an anti-reflux catheter to drive more of the therapy deeper into the tumor itself. Uh, perhaps uh, aberrant hepatic anatomy where you have a gastrohepatic trunk and you want to make sure that you're not going to reflux into any of the gastric branches. Uh, You could place that out at segments two and three and drive the dose deeper uh, without that concern for reflux into the stomach um, along with uh, the situations that you
0: spoke of.
2: Anish, I don't know. I think that answers your question, but you can tell me if I missed anything.
0: Yeah, no, I think it does. I think it does. So now... um... You know, next time I have a patient present, I'll know what to do. I guess, but <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, related to that, talk to me about price, and not even so much. You know, the, some po- folks might ask, ask the question, "Is it worth it or not?" But I'm interested a little bit in how do you even make a decision like this. I mean, let's pretend for a moment that we're in a place where the, I think what you guys said earlier. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we just said earlier is the data are going in the right direction, but still not necessarily um, definitive. Um, If you get to a place where the data are definitive is how does cost factor into something like this? Like if I'm a patient, I'm doing everything I can to say, I don't care what the price is. You know, if I got a better chance to live in here, you know, uh, know, hook it up. Um, Is I mean, is it that simple or is it more complicated?
2: I think uh, I that start. Uh, or go ahead, Charlie. yeah,
1: the therapy and the treatment of the patient is paramount. I don't think that cost should enter into that if we can prove that this is a superior way to treat the patient. So if we have survival and efficacy data uh, as well as imaging criteria that we're hitting that show patients do better with this type of therapy uh then I think it 's a no brainer um it gets a little bit gray is uh until we have all of that data but i don't think that it's just a cost benefit issue I think it's a is the patient going to do better with this therapy, and has that been uh borne out in the literature
2: yeah i uh so that's i I would agree um with a with i guess probably my own caveat, which is to say. The question is, what's better? And I think this is not just specific to this discussion, uh, particularly when you're dealing with oncologic outcomes. The, the true question of, of what means better um, is the one that everybody's trying to answer. So with these patients, you know all of the discussion we're having is that this is palliative and not curative. The holy grail of any therapy is that it's curative. Um, if you think of the continuum of doing nothing versus doing a therapy that's curative, then where do we fall? Well, we know that survival data when we do liver-directed therapy uh, is on the order of 12 to 24 months for HCC uh, of life extension. And so then within that data, I think the question is, how do you look at improved survival and what's statistically significant and what makes the most sense? I agree with Charlie completely that uh, therapy and patient outcomes are paramount and, and cost shouldn't factor in in that sense. Um, I can tell you that at our institution, because we um, are, number one, a conservative place, but number two, all of our purchasing is centralized and goes through a VAT committee. Um, th- these discussions are held every day about what the data shows, how much the the, the cost of the catheter is, and things like that. Um, and I think that uh, what what we'd like to see, what I'd honestly love to see, is that there's a clear benefit because once the data bears out that there's a clear benefit, I think then you can start to say, okay, there's an obvious indication here. We need to do more work to prove other indications. But as Charlie said, the cost is not really something that is going to be prohibitive because the patients are going to benefit significantly from this. So Anish, I don't, in my, in, in our practice and at our institution, I think um, for us, that's why probably we're waiting, so to speak to see more data because given our practice patterns, we'd love to see a more concise uh, situation. And I know Charlie and I have talked about it, but as an example, um, one of those indications might be for the guy that's in Tennessee or even for us doing you know, two or three of these a day, hypovascular tumors that otherwise you feel like are helpless when you're trying to do liver-directed therapy. Um, I'm very excited by the aspect or the thought around pressure-directed therapy for hypovascular tumors. I think it's something that could be great. Uh, but I do think that our institution and for us and, and for me personally, um I think about that equation by saying, okay, what's this, what's a clear indication? Um, what's a questionable indication, and what do we think we're really gaining here? Final thoughts, guys. You know,
0: what what do you think we didn't cover um that you'd like to share with our audience?
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> I do have a question for Charlie, if that's all right. You know, um yeah, sure. I I've only used the Surefire Catheter a handful of times. Um and a couple of those times we were in training, you know, what do you think of the actual usage of the catheter? So what I mean is, you know, typically if we talk about tools for a second, since it is a tool, we go in with a five French sheath through the groin, or if I'm doing a treatment, I go in radial, um, and I use a mother catheter, either a sauce or, or if I'm going radial, I use a Sarah and then I'll go micro catheter through that. How do you find the actual tools themselves? Because, I know that I asked um, some folks and sometimes people complain that the catheter is big or it's stiff or it doesn't track uh, and also complain that you have to use the mother catheter that's supplied by Surefire. I'm just curious to know what your experience is.
1: Sure. So I've performed probably a couple hundred uh, uh, procedures with the Surefire devices um, and different iterations. I think with the precision uh, microcatheter If I know that I'm going in to do a uh, uh, pressure-directed therapy with radioembolization or drug-eluting beads, then I would use their proprietary guide catheter from the beginning. It's five-french. It'll fit through a five-french sheath, but it's got the larger ID.
2: Um, Okay. What's the the, shape of it?
1: uh, I tend to use a SIM-1.
2: Okay, so they have a whole array of proprietary mother catheters. Got it. Okay. Okay.
1: Uh, so, they have a C2, a uh, Sauce like, and a SIM1. And I tend to do most of my liver directed therapy with the Simmons 1 shape reverse curve catheter. And then I think with the latest generation, the 021 precision catheters, it is very trackable uh, over a wire. Um, and it doesn't change my workflow. If I know that I'm going to be that, using that from the beginning, then I'll use their guide catheter. Um, There is a two to four millimeter uh, device deployment, so it does work in small vessels, and I've been able to use that segmentally, subsegmentally, and low bar.
2: Okay. And I guess my other question, because this is something that I started to think about uh, over the course of last week as we prepared for this discussion, you know, you have to purchase the guide catheters separately. Is that right? They don't come packaged with the microcatheters?
1: I believe that's true.
2: Okay. So for anybody that that wants to try to use this, certainly I'm sure the Surefire reps will let you know, but just keep in mind that you're going to want to um, have both the guide catheter and the microcatheter uh, available to you. The other thing I'll say, uh, what do you find, you know, if you're parked in um, a low bar distribution, let's just say, you know, in the main right pro- uh, proximal to the takeoff of the cystic, do you find that the, that the, the catheter still is occlusive enough, so to speak, to change perfusion? Particularly in a guy, let's just make it even easier, a guy who's got a hypertrophied um, hepatic artery because he's got portal vein thrombosis, and you want to do a low bar right with a pretty large diameter right hepatic artery.
1: Uh, Knowing that from the beginning, probably from doing a mapping uh, study, CAT scan, Um, I I would choose the larger device. So they are diameter dependent devices with uh, smaller and larger. And then there's actually a larger uh, second generation device that you could use in the the right hepatic artery. But I would say uh, sizing. um, We've been able to treat some of the larger vessels uh, with the four to six millimeter device. uh, And then obviously smaller ones with the smaller device.
2: And then if you, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I just would say that I I haven't had a vessel that was too large to be able to use the device within if it was appropriately sized.
2: Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my question. You know, sometimes you're, and and I think that could be another area where this might be beneficial because I've certainly been in the case where a guy's got a large diameter vessel and you've really got no control. You know, if you use, I use a two eight cantata a lot of times, but um, you've got no control over where that tip is going to be situated within the vessel. And so if you believe in differences of laminar flow through one of these hypertrophy vessel, you've got even less control over whether or not it's going to go to the tumor. So I think that's, that's actually probably uh, another exciting area that uh, where this could be applied. Well, last question for the device, Charlie, do, do you find that the normal O and A coils go well if you need to use them? Let's just say you're doing a chemo and you see collateral flow and you're trying to shut something down. Do you have any problem with, with putting no one coils through them?
1: Uh, that's, that's a great question, nine. And I don't know that they're really designed to be delivering coils through. I have done that. Um, and, uh, there's a O two five ID and a O two one ID. Um, I have been able to do that, but I would say if you're going to be doing coiling, I'd probably do that through a separate microcatheter, uh, and then use the surefire device after you've, uh, You've embolized. Uh, one thing I would say is that they do have a 150 centimeter length uh, that we've used radially.
2: Well, at least that's
0: about it for my questions. Okay, and uh, anything on your side, Charlie?
1: No, I just I think it's important for interventional radiologists to realize that the tumor microenvironment is is very complex, and there's 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 the interstitial matrix of the tumor. There are interstitial pressures within the tumor that are probably above systolic pressure. So I think that some of the de- these devices can help us deliver therapy deeper into the tumor and probably get more homogeneous coverage. It's not just a ball of cancer cells. There's a lot of complex physiology that's actually going on. So I think anything that we can do to take advantage of delivering more, more product or more therapy in the area of the tumor is potentially helpful.
2: I mean, I I I totally agree with Charlie. I think that there's I think we're probably on the tip of the iceberg. I think with uh any of the liver-directed therapy. I, I think that there's a lot more work to be done. And I think what hopefully we'll find is that as we find out more about pressure-directed therapy, we'll get to know the details about the types of devices, the types of catheters, the types of ways to deliver pressure-directed therapy, and how we can improve that. I mean, I'm excited about. Uh, the innovations that are coming down the pike. Well, thanks again to Surefire Medical, the
0: sponsors of our podcast. Learn more at surefiremedical.com. And thanks as well to Dr. Nainish Parikh and Dr. Charlie Nutting. Appreciate you guys being on here and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.